Today's scripture reading is taken from 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 to 19. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling, as each has received a gift. Use it to serve one another, as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely safe, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will and trust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. This is God's word. Thank you, Zen, for reading uh, the Bible for us. And for those of us who want to greet in person and pray for Kevin and Melissa, they're actually here this morning on the fourth row from the front. You can turn around and say hi to people. <laughs> Don't be shy, okay. Uh, for the rest of us, uh, very good morning, uh, beloved. I'm, I'm delighted to see some of us back for this in-person worship service. I'm also happy to have some of us uh, some of you join us over YouTube for this live stream worship service. With the rising infection numbers in Singapore, I understand that each of us has to decide for ourselves for and against gathering in person amid this COVID-19 pandemic. So wherever we are, do keep safe and well. And let us now at this time turn our hearts and give our attention to God. And to our friends who are visiting with us either in person today, or visiting with us uh, over live stream. Uh, I'm Oliver. Uh, I'm one of the pastors serving with the elders team here at Grace Baptist Church. And I want to just uh, welcome you warmly. So welcome. Uh, thank you for joining us this morning. Before we start, uh, we are on our sermon series in 1 Peter. There are a couple of books on the screen in front of you. Um, there are two which we'll recommend to you on the topic uh, um, that covers First Peter, uh, so you can have a look there. Those are the books on your right. Okay? And then we have three other books that talks about uh, discipling one-on-one. Uh, these are the three books on your left. So if you have your cell phone, you can take a picture of it, of, of these books, 
And I commend these books to you. In your own time, you can spend time just reading it and uh, equipping yourself in the Word. And as we prepare to hear from God's Word, let us now go to God in prayer. Let us pray. Father God, we come as sojourners thirsting for your satisfying Word. Open our eyes so that we can see the beautiful things in your Word. Enlighten our minds, enliven our hearts, empower our hands so that we may hear, receive, respond and obey your living word. Help us catch a clearer sight of Jesus Christ and in doing so, may we trust in him and find our delight in him. We pray this for our good and your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You know, I'm dating myself here. Um, when I was younger, I liked listening to the rock band Bon Jovi. And the song is My Life. This was released in 2000 by the, by the same rock band, this American rock band, um, and introduced Bon Jovi to a younger fan base. It actually reached number one in several European countries and number 33 on the American Billboard charts. And recently, it saw a comeback in popularity because there, was, there is a popular Korean drama that features a cover version of this song by a famous Korean female singer. It's, it's good listening, but, but even as I enjoy it, I ask myself, just what is this song trying to say? So this song, it captures the cry of this new generation, and it gives us a picture of how the world's culture tells us to live life and how we should face hardship. And the lyrics go something like this, the chorus. It's my life, it's now or never, but I ain't going to live forever. I just want to live while I'm alive. It's my life. And it goes on to say that my heart is like an open highway. Like Frankie said, I did it my way. So for the older generation, Bon Jovi is actually the grand-nephew of Frank Sinatra. And Frank Sinatra is well-known for the song, I Did It My Way. And uh, this continues and says, I just want to live while I'm alive is my life. So what this song does, it, it does capture the world's perspective. It tells, uh, the world tells us, since I'm not going to live forever, I'm going to live life my way, doing what I will. This song, although is honest about hardship, that hardship will come. So in one of the verses, it talks about tomorrow's getting harder, make no mistake. Life, luck ain't lucky, we've got to make your own breaks. And when you face opposition, the song tells us, better stand tall when they're calling you out, don't bend, don't break, baby, don't back down. So what I'm trying to say is, when facing hardship and opposition, you rely on yourself, you make your own breaks, and you stoically don't back down. This anthem captures the view of our prevailing culture. Do as you will. Seize the day while relying on yourself, even though you may fail, regardless of what other around, others around you say. My friends, is this how followers of Jesus Christ should live our lives and face suffering? How should believers live, live our lives and face suffering? Peter, in the passage that Zen just read for us, 1 Peter 4, 1-19, it gives us a distinctively counter-cultural worldview. Okay? In contrast to the song, Peter tells us, the Bible tells us, we will live forever. But we will be judged when Jesus Christ comes back. And this will determine how and where we will spend forever. Peter also tells us we should suffer as Christ did. Rather than suffering stoically, making your own breaks, we should suffer as Christ did and suffer joyfully. Christians live and suffer according to God's will, rather than going my way. So how should believers live our lives and face suffering? Keep this question in mind 
as we look at the uh, book of 1 Peter, looking at chapter 4, verse 1 to 19. And as we do so, we note that this is not the first time that Peter talks about suffering. He spoke on this in the second half of 1 Peter 3. Uh, Eugene preached this passage last week. And then there we see Peter telling us not to be anxious or fearful about suffering while doing good. For we shall be blessed in Christ who suffered for us, the righteous for the unrighteous. In 1 Peter 4, Peter circles back to the suffering, the topic of suffering again. And he fleshes it out even more. And he also tells us how to live as well. And the outline for today's message is in a ministry guide or on the screen in front of you. Peter tells us in verses 1 to 6 that we arm ourselves to suffer as Christ did. He tells us in verses 7 to 11, we live in the light of the end. And then he circles back to suffering again in verses 12 to 19, and he urges believers to suffer joyfully according to God's will. So how should we face suffering? How should we face suffering? Peter starts chapter 4 with a sins, therefore. So we look back a couple of verses. Peter concluded in chapter 3, verse 18 to 22, that the suffering of Christ was the pathway to Christ's victory and exaltation. So as Christ suffered, so too should believers commit to suffer. For the decision to suffer demonstrates that we have ceased letting sin control us. So we should arm ourselves with Christ's example in how we think. 1 Peter 4, verse 1, the first part of verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Since Christ Jesus, uh, since for Christ Jesus, suffering is the pathway to glory, believers, we should also prepare ourselves to suffer, knowing that suffering is a prelude to our eternal reward. If you look at the main verse, the main verb in this verse, the verb is that believers, we are to arm ourselves. We, we are to arm ourselves with the intention to suffer. Arm yourselves, this word here, arm, it has military associations. So, so you're saying that like soldiers preparing for war, believers, we ought to prepare ourselves likewise for suffering. And the second ver half of verse 1 gives us the reason we should do so. For whoever suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now, when, I, when I first read this, what, what does this verse mean? What does it mean to say that if we suffer, we have ceased from sin? Peter explained why we should prepare ourselves to suffer. Because he sees our commitment to suffer as proof that we have decisively broken with a life of committing acts of sin. Peter emphasized that those who dedicate themselves to suffer, those who willingly endure scorn and mockery for the name of Jesus, they show that they have victory over sin. They have broken with sin because they have chosen to cease to participate in the lawless activities of unbelievers. And as they endure the criticisms that come from such a decision, this commitment that they make to suffer for Christ reveals their desire for a new way of life. A way of life that commits to break with sin. This life is not yet perfect, but this life is remarkably different from the lives of unbelievers in their surrounding culture. So as we prepare to suffer, we show distinctively that we have made the commitment to break with sin. And as a result, believers ought to live to carry out God's will. We see that in verse 2. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Christians, we should arm ourselves to suffer so that we live the remainder of our lives as believers in carrying out 
God's will. We ought to do this instead of fulfilling the human lust that dominated our lives before our conversion. Whatever lifespan that God gives us, believers, we ought to live zealously for the Lord as long as life endures. Why? Why should we do so? Verse 3 tells us, For the time that is past suffices for doing what a Gentile wants to do. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Believers, we ought to live, we should live for the will of God. Because before our conversion, we devoted ourselves to the will of the Gentiles. Peter is saying, enough is enough. The time is past for us to live that way. The time is past for us to live as we live before we believe in Jesus Christ. Peter's point that it's more than enough. There's now no more room for playing around with the lifestyle of unbelievers. No more sexual sin, drinking and wild parties. No more chasing idols and living lifestyles that are not pleasing to God. My friends, honestly, as we, we think about this, even among believers, we are still tempted, right, to have a little dalliance, a little dance with our past lifestyle. We think it's okay, let's live a little. You know, like, like our bad habits, we are often tempted to, to go back to them, to give in to them. You know, I, I know I shouldn't comfort, eat, and consume the entire pint of Ben and Jerry's ice cream, but it's been a while, and, and the new Ben and Jerry's flavor is so appealing, and I give in. That's the appeal for us for our past life. We always feel that now we can just give in to it and, and we play around with it. And Peter knows how easily we can be tempted. So he tells us why we as believers, we should make a clean break with our old lifestyles. Peter tells us this in verses 4 to 6, because all will have to give an account. So verses 4, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and you malign you. So Peter is saying that you, you know, the Gentiles, the unbelievers, they are surprised when you don't join them in doing what they are doing and they will criticize you, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live to the Spirit the way God does. Believers, we are elect exiles. So we live differently. As a result, our neighbours are surprised. They think it's strange that Christians have forsaken their past lifestyles. You know, non-Christians, they are surprised when believers do not participate in what they consider to be normal cultural activities. In response, they criticize, they revile believers, and thereby also the God they worship. You know, if you think back, when Peter was writing to his original audience, to the Roman first century, it's very common for Gentiles then to celebrate Roman festivals or birthday of the, of the emperor. And in, in, the, in the celebration, it's often mixed with worship of the emperor. So as Christians, when they break away from that, they break away from what is commonly done by their neighbours. Their neighbours will think that them strange and criticise them. Now, in this passage, there's little evidence that the readers or the audience of Peter's letter, they are face, that they are facing state-sponsored persecution. But rather... The situation they are facing is like what many Christians in Singapore have met with. They were mistreated by being socially ostracized. Isn't that our experience as well? For some of us, just telling people that we are Christian, some people may just uh, distance you. So it's the same experience that we are also facing. So my friends, if this is your experience, listen to Peter's encouragement. Even though Believers, we are on the outside. The present circumstances we face will not have the last word. Peter says that non-Christians and Christians, we will need to give an account. And the word give an account here, 
this phrase is called room language. It refers to the final judgment when Christ returns. Peter reminds believers of the final judgment of all, assuring them that if they endure in the faith, this is what matters. And those who practice evil, they will be assessed, they will be asked to give an account and condemn on the final day. Therefore, believers, we are urged not to align ourselves with those who criticize us just to escape discrimination. Because very soon, God will turn the tables. For this, this phrase points forward to verse 6. But before we continue, you know, there's a very strange phrasing here. What does Peter mean by the gospel was preached even to those who are dead? Does it mean that, you know, uh, uh, when they die, their spirits go somewhere and, and the gospel is preached to them there? Uh, not really. Uh, not, this is not how you look at this, this verse. A better translation is given in the NIV and it reads, the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead. There are few interpretations of this text, but the one that makes the best sense is the one that I just read for you in the NIV. So, so Peter considered the case of believers who have died physically. These people heard and believed the gospel when they were alive, but now had subsequently died. And unbelievers view the death of believers as proof that there is no advantage in becoming a believer. Because you believer also die, the non-believer also die, all without exception die. But this is not so. Peter tells us that death is not the last word for believers. Believers will be raised from the dead. And he gives us a contrast between the flesh and the spirit. And this phrase here parallels what he said before in 1 Peter 3.18. For Christ also died in terms of his flesh, but he was raised to life by the Holy Spirit. A similar outcome, a similar destiny awaits us believers. We will die physically. Death will come to all of us, but we will be raised to life by the Holy Spirit. Peter reminds us that even if we die physically, Death is not the last word. The resurrection awaits. We will be raised to new life. We will live forever. Where and how we live forever is determined by the account we give to God who will judge us on the last day when Christ comes back again. So in the light of that, how then should believers face suffering? We arm ourselves to suffer as Christ did. Now my friends, let's face it. We are relatively comfortable here in Singapore, right? You know, much of our culture drives us to attain a standard of living that brings us comfort. You know, I, I know... In this pandemic time, we are facing the discomfort of social isolation. There are many restrictions. But face it, many of us still can have good meals. We can have our Atas coffee. You know, we have a relatively comfort, comfortable life compared to believers in other parts of the world. So as believers then, it means for us, it's not easy to, to, to be uh, uncomfortable. So it means for us that we need to choose discomfort for Christ. No, it's very easy or really easy not to let your colleagues at your workplace or your gym friends know that you are a Christian. Because by letting them know that you are a Christian, we know that they will start to look at us differently. Now, I had this experience before. The, the gym I'm at, all of them know I'm a Christian, I'm a pastor. Some of them start treating me differently when, when I tell them that I'm a Christian. But believers, I urge you, in your speech and in your conduct and in your response to their sometimes unkind remarks, let your response be peppered with grace and kindness that reflect Christ. So that perhaps through your, your gracious response, they may be curious and ask you for the hope that you have in you. 
Peter also urges us to turn away entirely from our previous lives of sin when we were unbelievers. We need to make a clean break. Now, this command is no easy believism. It doesn't, it's not a, when we, we hear this, it doesn't mean that, you know, as long as we trust in Jesus, we can anyhow do what we want. We can go back and do what we used to do. We need to make a clean break. It does not mean that we can think that I am already forgiven. I can continue to indulge occasionally in my past sinful habits. Peter urged us, because we need to give an account, because we are now different, we need to turn fully from our sins and turn entirely to Christ. It also means this, as a church, as a church, we should not adopt what the culture wants just to avoid criticism and be socially acceptable. Yes, we should be welcoming, we should be gracious, but we should be distinct so that we can be an outpost for God's kingdom. And how should we respond to God's coming judgment? As believers, we live differently because uh, we know that we will live forever and that we will be judged when Christ comes back again. And this judgment determines where and how we will spend forever. Okay? As believers, continue to trust in the gospel of Jesus Christ and obey Him. But I speak also to my non-Christian friends. Some of you could be here among us or some who will be watching over live stream. What does it mean for you? The Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, just as it's appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. We do have one life to live right now. And when we die, we will face God's judgment. We need to give an account to God. Where and how we spend forever depends on what we're going to do with Jesus Christ. If we acknowledge that we have sinned, and committed wrongdoings in our hearts and in our actions. And we believe that Jesus died on a cross in our place for the forgiveness of our sins and was raised to life to give us eternal life. And then we turn and commit to trust in Jesus fully. You will be saved from judgment and will spend forever in joy in God's presence. My friends, as you're listening into this, it could be that the Holy Spirit is tugging on your hearts. And if this is your desire, please feel free to contact me or email any of the elders of this church. And we'll be glad to arrange to either a phone call, a Zoom meeting, or even meet up with you personally and, and walk through with you what is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So do feel free to reach out to us. In his Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, American educator Stephen Covey talks about beginning with the end in mind. What he means is that you have a goal, you set your goal, you begin with your goal in mind. The Apostle Peter also talks about starting with the end in mind. But the end here that the Apostle Peter is talking about is far, far greater than your personal goals. He's talking about the end of all things. The end here is the end of all things. And we see this uh, as we go on to the next few verses from uh, verses 7 to 11. Verses 5 to 6, which we just covered, it ends regarding the last uh, final judgment. And Peter reminds us again in verse 7 that the end is near. Tells us the end of all things is at hand. And as a result of that, believers, we should be alert and sober for prayer. Verse 7. And we should live in sacrificial love that shows hospitality. Verse 8 and 9. And that we should use our gifts, whether speaking or serving gifts, to help others. Verses 10 to 11. Our aim and motivation is that in all that we do, we ought to see God glorified through Jesus Christ. Verse 7 opens concerning the end of history. The end is near because the ministry, death, 
on the resurrection of Jesus Christ has, they, it has inaugurated the last days. What this means is this, Jesus coming the first time has started in place God, uh, the end, uh, God's plan for the last days. This last days is this period of time between uh, Jesus Christ's first coming and Jesus Christ's second coming. And because the end is near, Jesus himself tells us he can come back at any time. Believers, we should live in the following way. The knowledge that believers, we are elect exiles, whose short time that we have right now should motivate us to make our life count right now. So we live in the light of the end. And what should we be doing? What are some of the things we do as we live in the light of the end? Verse 7. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Believers, we should think sensibly as we contemplate the shortness of life in this world. And our sensible and alert thinking it is to be used for prayer, petitioning God to act and move in the time that remains. The coming end should also stir us believers to love. Verse 8 to 9. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without, gambling, uh, without grumbling. So we are to show hospitality without grumbling. Peter here did not merely encourage believers to love one another in the light of the coming end. He urges us to love, to love telling us that this love is above all. And he tells us that the kind of love we should show is a kind of earnest love, a constant love for one another. And the reason he gives is this, love covers over a multitude of sin. As we read this, you know, does this mean that somehow when we love others, this love has some atoning value that somehow as we love, we atone for our own sins? No, because the rest of the Bible tells us this is not what uh, uh, that can be done. We cannot atone for our own sins. What it means here is then is this. It means that when believers, we lavish love on others, we overlook the sins and offences of others. The clear meaning here is that love covers over the wrongs of others as we forgive and show practical love. And one way Peter tells us to show such love is through hospitality. Now, most of, uh, we, we know that we are encouraged to, be, to show hospitality and, and, and we want to open our homes to invite friends over for a meal and to show genuine interest in them. And we love them by showing genuine interest in them. But in the context, hospitality in first century um, Middle East is really important for Christian mission. Because in those days, you know, accommodation and inn and lodging is expensive. So if you are a Christian missionary, if you go out from the church and you travel somewhere to tell others of the gospel, it's really expensive to find accommodation. So hospitality then means to open up your homes, have the Christian missionaries or evangelists stay in there, and by showing hospitality, you're actually partnering them for the sake of the gospel, for the advance of the gospel. Of course, hospitality is also then, you remember, in the first century, churches then don't have buildings like this. They met in homes, small homes. So hospitality then is also important as they open up their homes for a small group of people to come together, together to worship. So hospitality in the first century means more than what we think of hospitality now. We think of putting our home, showing friendship, giving them a meal, showing interest and showing love. Yes, there is definitely that. But hospitality in this context means hospitality in such a way that we advance the gospel. And friends, we can easily do that even right now in this pandemic times. And Peter shifts finally to the theme of serving one another in love. And he talks about the gifts that have been given to us uh, by God's grace. So we see verses 10 to 11. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. 
Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now, Peter, in addressing uh, uh, the believers, he implied that each believers we have all received at least one spiritual gift. For Peter addressed his words to each one. And when believers use their gifts to strengthen others, they function as good stewards of God's grace. And you see here, I won't go into this whole theology of uh, spiritual gifts, but I just briefly want to just cover um, it. You see the gifts here are separated or divided into two categories, speaking gifts and serving gifts. Those who speak should seek to speak the very words of God. What does this mean? It means that as we are using our speaking gifts to minister to others, to serve others, um, we, we seek to faithfully speak God's word. We seek to uh, be faithful to the Bible itself. Now, oftentimes we think we can assist others with our own wisdom, but those of us who are entrusted with the ministry of speaking should be careful that we are faithfully speaking God's word. We should be careful that we are faithful to the gospel. Similar, those who minister and serve others must not rely on their strength. They must minister with the strength that God provides, relying on God's power to carry out His tasks. Why is this so? Because as we rely on God in our speaking, as we rely on God in our serving, we rely on God who provides. And the provider is always the one who is to be praised. That's why Peter ends this section with a doxology, uh, a, a hymn of praise to Jesus Christ. So how then should we as believers live our life? We live our lives in the light of the end. In practice, let's ask ourselves, are we as a church alert and sober for prayer? How much of our interaction with our church friends is spent in prayer? I know this is pandemic time, we can't gather as like what we did in the past, but we can still give each other a call, we can meet up over Zoom, or we can even meet up in really small groups uh, for, for a meal. As we gather, what, is, what do we mainly talk about when we gather? Do we spend time praying for each other? Have we as a church lived in sacrificial love that includes hospitality? You know, in practice, we could invite our non-Christian friends to our house. And as I said, one way we show love is just to express interest in them as a person. Okay? And as we love and care for them genuinely as a person, they may then be curious and we may have an opportunity to share the hope, the gospel hope that we have in us. We can also open our house, of course, within the COVID-19 safety regulations to host our CG meetings. It's harder for outside socialization at these times, so we can extend our hospitality and love when we can meet again in fives and eights by opening up our house. Ask ourselves as well, how have we been stewarding our gifts, whether speaking and serving? Have we been using our gifts to help others, to build others up? Now, to borrow Paul, the Apostle Paul's metaphor, the church is a body. And for us to be healthy, every part needs to do our part. So how have you been building up others in the church? And as we do all this, as we serve and love others, as we show hospitality, as we pray for others, we do this in love. Our aim and motivation to glorify God through Jesus Christ. Lastly, we move on to the last section. You know, the last section again comes back to this idea of suffering. But it talks about how then we should suffer joyfully according to God's will. You know, as I read this, I, I do struggle because suffering and joy seem, doesn't seem to belong to the same idea. It seems almost counterintuitive. 
And we see here Peter encourages us to suffer joyfully according to God's will. And when I read this, my, my comfort-seeking idol self, uh, uh, my comfort idol-seeking self struggled with this idea. But, but, but Peter presses in on us and circles back to the idea of suffering. Verse 12 tells us to expect to suffer. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it, is co- it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. We reminded here that the fiery ordeal was for testing and refining a believer's faith. Hence, we, not, we ought not to think of suffering as something strange and unexpected. You know, unlike some quarters of Christianity which preaches prosperity gospel and tells us that faithful Christians do not suffer, Peter's teaching here is clear. Believers, we should expect to suffer. Now, as I say this, I want to be careful here. Unlike other religions which tells us that suffering is good, the Bible tells us that suffering is not good. It is part of the fall and is evil. But our sovereign and purposeful, our good God, can and will use suffering for our good and for His glory. And indeed, instead of being surprised at our suffering, believers should rejoice and be glad. Verse 13, But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. This is such a remarkable uh, verse. We rejoice because such suffering that we face indicates that we will exalt with remarkable joy when Jesus Christ is revealed in all His glory. What this means is this. When we suffer and share in suffering that follows Christ's example of suffering, we can rejoice because as believers, we can be assured that we, as we share in His suffering, we will also share in His glory when Christ returns. Remarkable. Suffering now for us, but we are assured that we will enjoy God's glory when Jesus comes again. And verse 14 explains this further. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Being accused for the sake of Christ is an indication that the believers, we stand under God's blessing even now. Indicates that the end time glory of verse 13 and the Holy Spirit even now rests in part on believers. The promise of future joy energizes the joy that will be ours in the future. As Pastor John Piper writes, we do not choose suffering simply because we are told to, but because the one, meaning God, who tells us, describes it as the path to everlasting joy. We suffer as Christ did because this is the path to everlasting joy. Then should believers then pursue all kinds of suffering? Peter is careful here. There is a suffering that commands and encourages a suffering for Christ, but there is a kind of suffering that he warns against. A suffering because we practice evil. We see this in verse 15. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or thief or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Peter is careful here. He's telling us, believers, we should not suffer because we practice evil. You know, if you are often sinfully angry and you take it out on others around you, then the suffering you experience as people leave you alone, as you face social isolation, as people avoid you because of your sinful anger, this is not the kind of suffering that people commence. Okay? So, So in essence, if I can paraphrase Peter, Peter is saying, do not do stupid things. And when you suffer for doing stupid, silly things, sinful things, do do not say that you suffer because you follow Jesus Christ. 
This is not the kind of suffering we should pursue. Instead, if we suffer, we must suffer as those, called, those of us who are called Christians, that is, followers of Christ. We must suffer for being a Christian. For such suffering, uh, we should not be ashamed, but glorify God by suffering with Jesus Christ. Verse 16 tells us this, Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Finally, finally, Peter ends by telling us that judgment begins in God's church, and so we commit ourselves to God. Verse 17 to 18 writes, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely safe, what will become of the godly? Uh, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Peter finally ends in verses 17 and 18. He explains why believers are suffering. Suffering represents God's judgment of His house, and by the house of God, Peter here means the church of Jesus Christ. And when Peter says this, it does not mean that God was punishing believers for their sins because we have forgiveness of sins in Christ. But rather, what Peter is saying is suffering purifies the church. We see this in uh, uh, 1 Peter 4.1 and how God uses suffering to prompt believers, to provoke believers to make a clean break with sin. Judgment begins with the church and purifies it. But you also suppose that, that if God purifies the church by His judgment, the judgment of those who disobey the gospel will have terrible consequences. So even if the church face suffering as, as believers uh, and God is purifying us, how, how much more uh, terrible would it be for unbelievers to face God's judgment? In verse 18, the same point is restated as Peter quotes from Proverbs 11, verse 31. If the righteous are saved through the purifying suffering, if they need such a refining word, work, such a refining work, then the judgment of the ungodly and sinner will be terrible indeed. So this serves as a warning to unbelievers. We need to give an account so do turn uh, from your unbelieving ways and turn to Jesus Christ. Finally, verse 19 functions as a conclusion to the entire paragraph. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful Creator while doing good. Now we will learn from verse 12 and verse 17 and 18 that the suffering that strikes believers is in accord to God's will. And I want to take the time now to address some of us personally. Maybe some of us here right now are suffering. And I want to speak a personal word to you. Now, I'm, I'm sorry that you're facing this struggle, this suffering. But yet, at the same time as your pastor and friend, I want you to trust in God's purposeful sovereignty. As pastor and theologian Thomas Schreiner writes, the reference to God's will here, as in 1 Peter 3.17, indicates that all suffering, all suffering passes through God's hands. That nothing strikes a believer apart from God's loving and sovereign control. Friends, if you're facing suffering, there's, there's always a part of suffering that is a mystery. You don't quite know why. But we can trust this. We trust that the suffering that comes to us is not apart from God's loving and sovereign control. Our loving, purposeful, sovereign God is still in control. Sometimes suffering passes through His loving hands for the purification of believers and so that those of us who belong to God, we should entrust our lives to our faithful Creator, just as Jesus Himself entrusted His life to God when He suffered. God is sovereign and faithful. He is purposefully sovereign. And no suffering occurs apart from His will. He is faithful 
so that he will see that his suffering does not exceed what we can bear. Therefore, my friends, we should persist in doing good and trusting ourselves to God always, showing that we have made a clean break with sin in the pursuit of goodness. So as, as I end here, uh, as the pianist uh, continues playing, how should then as believers, should we face suffering? We should joy, suffer joyfully according to God's will. My friends, examine yourself. Have you been avoiding suffering for the sake of Christ? How is your heart response and behaviour when you face suffering as a Christian? Is your response one of joy? Do you count it all joy to suffer for the sake of Christ? And my friends, we live in an increasingly post-Christian world. And though in Singapore we may not face the widespread and systematic persecution that face believers in other parts of the world, but it will become increasingly unfashionable to be a Christian. We will face increasing social ostracism and criticism. In the light of all this, can we rejoice when we face social scorn for bearing the name of Jesus? Can we rejoice in our suffering, knowing that suffering points to the joy that we have when we spend eternity in God's glory when Christ comes back again? And as we suffer according to God's will, let us continue to entrust our souls to our faithful Creator while doing good. So as we end this time in God's Word together, there are a couple of reflection questions I have left on the screen towards the end. Think on these. What is my attitude towards suffering? How am I facing the suffering that comes because I am a Christian? How am I living in the light of the end of all things? And how have I been glorifying God in the way I've been living or suffering? Beloved, let us pray. Father God, we thank you for Jesus Christ who suffered for our sakes, for the forgiveness of our sins. Because of Christ's finished work on the cross, we who place our faith in Him, Lord, we, we, we thank you that we can be assured of spending forever in joy in your presence. But we thank you for this promise and we thank you for keeping your promises to your people. Help us to arm ourselves to suffer as Christ did. Help us to live in the light of the end. Help us to suffer joyfully according to your will so that Christ will be magnified and you glorified. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.